Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, we talk to a volcanologist about the ongoing La Palma eruption. There are superhumans walking amongst us, and researchers discover that overeating may not be the main cause of obesity. But first, it was this week in 2018 that Dickinsonia, the oldest known animal fossil, was discovered in Russia. 558 million years after the flat, worm-like creature wriggled its way across the seafloor, scientists are trying to bring back the prehistoric woolly mammoth, as you'll hear later on in the show. This past week, there's been a volcano eruption on La Palma in the Spanish Canary Islands. Molten rock rose from the Earth's crust last Sunday and has been flowing from the Cumbre Vieira volcano ever since. It's forced 6,000 local residents to evacuate the area and the unstoppable flow of lava has destroyed around 350 houses and significantly damaged agricultural land, schools and crucial infrastructure. As apocalyptic as those images on our screen look, according to Cambridge volcanologist Amy Donovan, this is all pretty normal stuff. This is a pretty typical eruption for this kind of volcano. It's a fissure eruption um, at a, an ocean island. The most plausible sort of eruption scenario for this kind of context is this kind of eruption. But how did this eruption start and did we have any warning signs? They got warning that something might happen. The last few days was when it sort of started escalating and, and it seemed more likely. There were a couple of weeks of, of increased earthquake activity and earthquakes at volcanoes um, tend to show us that magma is moving around. It's very typical for this kind of eruption for you to get two or three weeks notice of something going on. The problem is, is that kind of final link between is this magma that's moving around actually going to hit the surface or not? Well, it's been a week already and there are reports that the lava has started to slow and spread out. Does that mean the end could be in sight? These kinds of eruptions typically last for some weeks or months in this kind of a setting, but it is very variable. They can last for years sometimes. Um, the one in Iceland has now been going for several months. So there are a range of different scenarios on duration and it's, it's in some ways it's the thing about volcanic eruptions that people forget about. They always sort of, when is it going to erupt? Where is it going to erupt? What kind of eruption is it going to be? But they forget it could last a long time. The lava's already damaged tons of properties in agricultural land, but as it moves towards the coast, what are those dangers? Are there any? The main hazards at the moment, there's some ash emission coming out of the fissure itself. There's gas hazard in the, in the area as well at the moment from, from the sulphur dioxide and other gases. When it reaches the sea, there is the potential for some explosive activity. Water and magma don't mix particularly well. The other thing that, that happens when magma enters the ocean um, is that you do get some gas emissions and steam emissions that might include things like chlorine. And so you can get another sort of hazardous gas cloud around the ocean entry as well as some explosive activity. One thing that I would stress is that people in the local area really should 
follow in volcan for information follow the local agencies because they they have the data they're monitoring the volcano they know what's going on best and they're working really really hard to provide really robust information for people If you've ever gazed up at the imposing museum reconstructions of woolly mammoths and dreamt of what life might be like living alongside these prehistoric animals, you could soon be in for a bit of a treat. While this might sound like a scene from Jurassic Park, this is actually happening. Using CRISPR genome editing technology from the University of California, Berkeley, a team of scientists aim to genetically resurrect woolly mammoths by 2027. The project already has $15 million in funding and the technology may actually be there to make it happen. Scientifically, they're not bringing back the woolly mammoth. Uh, it's, it's actually more like creating a genetically modified elephant. That's Jack Tseng from the UC Berkeley Department of Integrated Biology speaking with ABC7 News. And, and in that sense, you no know, science has a lot of experience genetically modifying you know, all sorts of you know, different things. I think it's definitely you know, within the technology and the science that we can you know, see that it's possible today to make something like that happen. And you might be asking, why on earth would we want to bring back the woolly mammoth? Well, the scientists plan to repopulate the Arctic with mammoths to help rebalance Arctic plant life. The current imbalance means increased carbon emissions, worsening the effects of climate change. Mammoths used to maintain the balance and the hope is that they can do it again. But not everyone's on board with the idea, and Professor Paul Knopfler of UC Davis School of Medicine is doubtful. You know, realistically, unlike some portrayals like in Jurassic Park, you couldn't really just splice in fragments with, you know, related animals or anything like that. That's not really going to work. Uh, mammoths, you know, it's a little bit more practical to try to get them back. They, they were alive not that long ago in the grand scheme of time. Uh, and yet, still, you know, finding intact cells or genomes uh, has proven really difficult. But ultimately, Paul's biggest concern is what this kind of project would do to elephants. I'm very worried that this project to try to de-extinct mammoths, it's going to end up hurting elephants. You would need to get eggs from female elephants, and really we shouldn't be doing that. That process of treating elephants with hormones and getting the eggs out, which, as far as I understand, has never successfully been done, you know, even if you get that to work, those female elephants should not be subjected to that, I don't think. They should uh, be allowed to kind of go about their life and, and perhaps uh, breed to produce more elephants that are needed to sustain their populations, not used for some kind of pet project. Um, you know, it's possible some people might try to use elephants as surrogate mothers. Again, that's a bad idea. We should be leaving those elephants alone. So I think all in all, this is going to be something that's really bad for elephants. Forget Thor and Thanos, there could be superhumans walking amongst us here on Earth. Just maybe not quite in the way you think, it's being called superhuman immunity. New research shows some people may have a significantly higher level of immunity to COVID-19 that could even protect them from future pandemics. 
Superhuman indeed, although some scientists like Paul Beanash, a virologist at the Rockefeller University, prefer the term hybrid rather than superhuman immunity. So I should I should very quickly say that the term superhuman immunity did not come from us. I would, wouldn't dream of uh, using such a term in a sober scientific uh, publication. Semantics aside, the research has shown some really promising results. Scientists studied individuals who've recovered from the virus earlier on in the pandemic and then later received an mRNA vaccine such as Pfizer or Moderna. What they found was fascinating. Their antibodies were not only capable of neutralising all of the SARS-CoV-2 variants that we have seen thus far. They're also capable of neutralizing viruses that are very much more diverse, including uh, the original SARS coronavirus, which is really quite different to the current ones. Viruses that are currently circulating in bats and pangolins, uh, some whose sequences are really quite different to, to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, Stressing that the research is new and needs more real-world testing, Paul urges caution, but he's still hopeful. This, I think, tells us that Neither original infection nor the vaccines that we have, though very effective, they have in no way come close to exhausting the capacity of the human immune system to mount defense against this virus. It's partly for that reason that I think I'm more enthusiastic than most about the prospects of, of boosting to, to, to really um, put more pressure on the virus to um, really curtail the spread if we can just get people to take those shots. Stories are a really powerful tool. Through shared experience, they can bring together people from all walks of life. And now, with new research from City College of New York, there's evidence that this connection through storage is biological. Our heartbeats will actually synchronise whilst we're listening to them, no matter how close we are. In the first experiment, volunteers listened to an audiobook of Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea while hooked up to an electrocardiogram. As they listened, their heart rates changed based on what was happening in the story, and the researchers found the majority showed increases and decreases in their heart rate at exactly the same points in the narrative. That's pretty neat, isn't it? But I know you might be thinking, why is this even important? Wouldn't we all want to know that our hearts are somehow connected? I mean, I'm saying this jokingly, of course, um, but uh, I think that it, it's captured the attention of a broader audience precisely because it's sort of nice to know that um, when you're sitting there just like listening to your podcast uh, if if we do a good job right now in telling the story then then the, the heart rate of your audience is fluctuating similarly that's professor lucas para the co-senior author on the study though it's a somewhat poetic interpretation of the data the discovery that our heartbeats sync up when paying attention to a story has practical medical applications from a more sort of pragmatic point of view, some of the motivation of the work was to look at uh, patients that are perhaps in, in a coma or in a vegetative state, we call them disorders of consciousness. It would be nice to know by looking at the heart rate, which is monitored in a clinic 24-7 um, for these patients, by simply looking at the heart rate, we would be perhaps able to tell if they're understanding when we talk to them. Um, patient that's in a coma when the family comes and 
ask the doctor was the first question will be, well, can she understand me? Can he understand me? Um, and, um, and you could possibly answer it by just simply looking at the at that monitor that's on the bedside already. So I think that's a very sort of pragmatic, important implication that motivated some of the work. And the applications don't stop there. Some of the research motivation is about attention, and they found similar results when watching educational videos too, but not if you're distracted. There's more research to be done, but this paper provides hope for those experiencing disordered consciousness. And for slacking students in Zoom school, your time may be up. Still to come on the Sunday 7, we catch up with NASA with the latest from Perseverance and we talk to a scientist who says overeating may not actually be the root cause of obesity. Right after this. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. I'm happy to say that not one, but that the first two samples of another planet are prepped and stowed as the first official candidate samples to be returned to Earth by a future mission. Earlier this month, NASA's Mars rover Perseverance collected the first Martian rock samples from a Martian boulder dubbed Rochette. And as you can hear from Laurie Glaze, director of NASA's Planetary Science Division, it's a pretty big deal. You know, at NASA, we get to see a lot of things that rewrite the history books. And what occurred September 6th, at Jezero Crater is right up there with any of them. Perseverance was sent to Jezero Crater on Mars precisely because it looks to have had a habitable environment billions of years ago. And these rock samples seem to suggest that the scientists were right. An interesting thing about these rocks as well is that they show signs for sustained interaction with groundwater. Uh, if, if these rocks experience water for long periods of time, there may be habitable niches within these rocks that could have supported ancient microbial life. That's Jessica Samuels, the Perseverance Surface Mission Manager. As she and her fellow NASA colleagues explained in a media briefing, salt spotted within these rocks are suspected to have formed when groundwater flowered through the original minerals of the rocks or when liquid water evaporated. Just as salt minerals are known to preserve signs of ancient life on Earth, NASA hopes that these minerals have trapped tiny bubbles of ancient Martian water, which could serve as microscopic time capsules on the Red Planet. Now, as exciting as this prospect is, we might have to wait a little while before any of it's confirmed. The carefully selected samples of Martian rock and soil wouldn't be completely analysed immediately, as the equipment needed to do that's too complicated to send to Mars. Instead, the rover will hold on to the samples until they can be collected by another rover in about, oh, I don't know, 10 years' time. So even though it's a while before real analysis can take place, the NASA team's rightly over the moon with what they've achieved so far. I cannot overstate the significance of these rock samples that were collected by Perseverance. This is a truly historic achievement. You know, the very first rock cores collected on another terrestrial planet. It's amazing. 
Okay, if you're a regular on the M25, this week has likely been filled with motoring mayhem. Commiserations. Insulate Britain, an offshoot of Extinction Rebellion, has been busy blocking sections of the motorway, calling on the government to fund and take responsibility for the insulation of all social housing in Britain. Although it turns out the group's spokesperson, Liam Norton, hasn't even insulated his own home, there are companies out there who are taking matters into their own hands to tackle the environmental damage caused in construction by coming up with a nature-based solution. This is Ehab Syed, founder of the eco-construction company Biom, speaking with Sky News. They've created a sustainable insulation for your home grown from mushrooms. I found that there were huge amounts of waste coming out of the construction industry. So I developed a construction system and then we realised there was a major problem around the materials in the industry and therefore we started to focus on developing our own materials. The construction industry is a heavy hitter when it comes to CO2, accounting for almost 40% of global emissions. Biome has created insulation that will be the world's first accredited mycelium insulation product and it's carbon negative. But as innovative as this all seems, the companies come against some pushback. There have been a lot of challenges. There's been a lot of resistance from the industry. There's been a huge kind of perception barrier around natural materials and the stigma that surrounds them not being able to perform as well as synthetic materials. But when we started testing against accreditation standards, we realised that we're actually outperforming the synthetic materials. And that really created that shift in mindset. Alongside their mushroom insulation, Biome has also made a sheet of material out of food waste and is now working on developing a plan based concrete, all with the aim of revolutionising our built environment for a better and more sustainable future. The climate crisis is, um, you know, one of the biggest existential challenges uh, that we've ever come across as, as a species. And so uh, for us to continue to grow, we have to have a positive impact. We can no longer just be sustainable or have a kind of carbon neutral approach. Um, we need to go beyond that and we need to look at carbon negative approaches and where's ways in which we can always add value and have a positive and regenerative impact on the environment and society with all of our practices. It's no secret that us Brits have a bit of a problem with our weight and keeping it off. According to the Health Survey for England 2019, obesity affects 28% of adults in England and after a nasty bout of Covid, even the Prime Minister himself has admitted... My friends, I was too fat. With obesity placing a significant proportion of the population at greater risk of heart disease, strokes, type 2 diabetes and certain types of cancer, it has a significant impact on the NHS. For years we've been told that the solution is simply to eat less, but new research from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition suggests that rather than the quantity of food we consume, it's low-quality foods, in particular processed carbohydrates, that are driving weight gain. To find out more, we caught up with the paper's lead author. I'm David Ludwig. I'm a researcher and physician in Boston. I'm based at Boston Children's Hospital with uh, appointments at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. We need to look at obesity in different ways. Doctors, public health experts have been advising low-calorie diets, eating less and moving more for decades. And yet obesity rates continue to increase. So David and his fellow researchers are taking a new approach to look at obesity. Processed carbohydrates, so think white bread, white rice, potato products, the low-fat cookies, crackers, desserts, sugary, sugary foods that these raise the hormone insulin too much. Insulin 
directs calories into fat cells and it prevents calories from getting out. So under states of high insulin, people gain weight. We argue that these processed carbohydrates, fast digesting carbohydrates that flooded our diet during the low fat years have raised insulin and caused the body to go into fat storage mode. And consequently, we get hungry and overeat. And if we try to eat less, well, we have this battle between mind and metabolism, explaining why low calorie diets are so difficult to follow over the long term. If there are any listeners out there struggling with their weight, what suggestions do you have that they can implement today? The place to start, according to this model, is by reducing uh, the processed, fast digesting carbohydrates, processed grains, potato products, and concentrated sugar. But don't just eliminate them, replace them with healthy, high fat foods, which every chef knows are, are delicious. So nuts and nut butters, olive oil, full fat dairy, avocado, even dark chocolate with low amounts of, of sugar. It's delicious and sustainable. And all you need to do is shift your body's fat storage tendency by a few grams a day so that over time, um, most problems with excessive weight will resolve. For more information and to read the study for yourself, just check out the link in the show notes. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.